Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. There's been so many people that have suffered from smoking-related illnesses and so many people that have lost someone close to them. And it's important that, that companies, whether it's the tobacco industry or other industries that are greedy and that cause this, inflict this kind of harm, that they need to be held accountable. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I just I just took me about like a 30 seconds to click through the, the new Zoom warning that we're being recorded. Um, I know. It scares me every time that comes on now. <laughs> I know. New, new Zoom development right, right in time for uh, the end of the pandemic. But... You know, you and I talk about a lot about, I mean, we were using Zoom for the podcast before the pandemic, but so many people use it now and probably will continue to use it. So I get that yeah. they're, uh, I get that they're warning people they're being recorded now. Yes. Yeah. No more sneaky uh, recording people without them realizing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they took care of that. Yeah. Wouldn't be much of a podcast if we weren't recording it though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, uh, and Yvonne, I wanted to let you know, so, uh, this weekend I went for the first time, I just thought it'd be interesting. I went ax throwing. Have you done that yet? I haven't. I, um, how was it? Was it fun? It was a lot of fun. It was, it was really cool. The only thing that gave me pause as a trial attorney is, you know, they give you this waiver that you have to sign at first. And I'm like, you're like, yeah, I really don't want to sign this thing, but you know. So is but, there uh, a, um, ar oh, agreement like, to arbitrate in there? It, well, you're not even going to get to arbitration because it really doesn't matter what happens in there. They're saying you can't sue them. If like an, uh, you know, an ax murderer came in there and just started throwing it at people, it, they got zero responsibility. Got it. But, but you uh, were like, hey, we're Worth, worth it to throw an axe around for a that's, while. That's right. That's exactly right. That's Got exactly it. right. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's introduce our guest uh, so that we can get on with the show because I know that's what everybody's waiting for. Um, so, our guest is a fantastic trial lawyer from uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's Eric Rosen with Rosen Injury Law. And um, Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. And uh, I was I was actually wondering when you mentioned uh, axe throwing, do they serve alcohol there too? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because it's it is connected to a brewery, and they you you can't actually order uh, drinks in the axe throwing, but you can walk right next door, get a beer, and bring it right back to the axe throwing. So, <laughs> you know, they don't technically sell it there, yeah, but they don't they don't they don't stop you from bringing it in either. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a, a potential disaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, who's going to want to throw a good axe unless you've had a few beers? Right? <laughs> <laughs> He's one of those things you probably just get better at, like right. bowling. Couple oh, yeah. beers helps. Pool, like I, 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 my my best pool games is after I've had about three or four uh, drinks, <laughs> and then after that, I'm straight off the cliff. It just goes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Eric, let me tell everybody a little bit about you, but let me first tell everybody that if they want to look you up and find you, they can go to roseninjury.com. That's R-O-S-E-N injury.com. Uh, so Eric, it practices in Florida. We, I, I think everybody thought that once I said he was from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, but he practices in Florida, is a certified uh, by the Florida Bar as a civil trial specialist, which only 2% of lawyers uh, in the state are certified as that, or less than 2%, uh, was a former state's attorney in Broward County, 
has been named in the best lawyers uh, from 2002 all the way to the present, uh, is uh, been named as a super lawyer or a rising star from 2012 all the way to the present, uh, is the president-elect of the Florida uh, Fort Lauderdale chapter of ABOTA, uh, and is a faculty at the National Institute of Trial Advocacy, uh, and has tried just a number of cases with fantastic results, many of which, or most of which are against the tobacco industry and and, um, you know, we talk about, you know, sometimes our product liability cases, Ford Motor Company, everybody knows they roll over and they're easy to try case against, very easy to work with. Well, the tobacco industry is also known as just being super easy to work with. Uh, they basically, they just dole, dole out money. I mean, is that what happens, Eric? Uh, not quite, not quite. <laughs> that would be nice. but uh, Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, so this is a, um, a really interesting case. And we've actually, I should remind everybody, we've actually talked at least about one of these cases before, which is the Ingalls progeny cases when we uh, had Laura Champ on back in 2019, uh, who tried who tried one of these cases. And then we also had a tobacco litigation case, which was out of uh, Louisiana when we talked to Russ Herman. So we've talked a little bit about the tobacco industry before. Um, and uh, before we get into the specific facts of this case, I mean, you know, every time I read the the facts or the background of the tobacco industry i mean it is uh you know it's just a lesson in in corporate greed corporate evil uh i mean it it literally like you you think that if you're watching the simpsons and you see mr burns and you're like oh they're just being funny you know going over the top but i actually think that the people who run tobacco companies are mr burns i mean they're just sitting back there thinking of new ways they can addict children to uh cigarettes and uh and to making sure that people can uh, can get that nicotine and that smoke into their lungs easy because that's basically what all of their memos say and uh and what all of their advertisements are uh and, um, and like I noticed, for instance, Eric, one of the advertisements, and I actually looked this one up, was the uh, Flintstones, where Barney and uh, Barney and Fred uh, go out back while their wives are doing yard work and they're they're smoking their Winstons, talking about how Winstons are are so good. Yeah, I mean, I I think I've I play that uh, commercial probably every trial. You you can't miss the Flintstones um, with Barney and Rubble out back uh, smoking cigarettes and Barney talking about uh, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should and. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's one of the, that's one of the, you know, important, um, ones to show just to kind of bring people back to, you know, what that life was very, very different back in the forties and the fifties and the sixties when, you know, uh, more than 50% of people were smoking back then and doctors yeah. smoked and it was normal. So, you know, one of the big issues we have in these trials today is that, uh, you know, it's, it's people, everyone knows now smoking is bad. It's deadly. It's addictive. And uh, and so there's a stigma that is associated with smoking and people, you know, having this automatic belief. Well, gosh, if you smoked, it was your choice. You chose to smoke and, you know, you suffer the consequences. It's about personal responsibility. And uh, we have to we have to really um, our job is to bring them back and show them the different world that, that people were raised in. That wasn't so the information wasn't so readily available and was you know certainly concealed by the Mr. Burns's of the tobacco industry. Right, exactly. Well, uh, let me go ahead and tell everybody the name of the case and, and a little bit about it. The name of the case was Vivian Turner as personal representative of the estate of Vivian Wilkinson versus R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. And this uh, was about uh, Vivian Wilkinson, uh, who was born in 1933 and smoked for what I saw somewhere between 40 to 50 years, started when she was about 13 years old. 
um, and uh, had two children. Um, one was Vivian uh, Turner, who I think was a teacher, and then uh, or who is a teacher, and then her son uh, was a chief master sergeant, uh, and they were the ones bringing the claims on behalf of their mother. Um, but basically, Vivian started smoking when she was 13 years old uh, and went, you know, basically became addicted. It sounded like she had about a pack a day habit. And then she ends up uh, in the 1990s, around 1993, getting COPD and um, emphysema and then unfortunately passes away in 1996. <clears throat> and... Um, and as I said right at the beginning, this is an Ingalls versus Liggett uh, progeny case, which was a class action. And I'm going to actually I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what I understand about it. But then I'm going to ask uh, Eric to, to explain it because he's uh, he's done it much more than than I know. But um, but basically this may this was a large class action in which uh, certain findings of fact were made about cigarettes as far as whether or not they're dangerous, whether or not they're defective, whether or not they're addictive. And then is so you go into trial, certain things have been uh, established like those things. But then you have to prove that your person fits within the uh, the class, which, as I understand, it was somebody who was diagnosed before 1996, that they were addicted and that their addiction caused the disease, uh, whatever disease they have. Um, and then uh, after that, there's going to be other arguments about statute of limitations. It, it actually is surprising with what they have found in the class action, how much how how hard these cases still are uh, and, and what how much work goes into proving them, despite the fact that there's already been certain findings of fact. So, Eric, I know I may have butchered that a little bit. Well, could just tell us uh, briefly what exactly is the Ingalls progeny or those Ingalls progeny cases? Yeah, sure. Um, you you kind of you, you're pretty much uh, on the right track. So, you know, in the early 1990s, there was an attorney. His name was Stanley Rosenblatt. And if anyone, because this is a trial podcast, if you haven't read his book, it's called Trial Lawyer. It's a compilation of a bunch of short stories from the 70s and 80s of when Stanley Rosenblatt, this lawyer from Miami, is trying medical malpractice, personal injury cases. And back then, this guy was getting, you know, $800,000 verdicts, million dollar verdicts. Those were big, big verdicts back then. And uh, that was actually the reason why I became a personal injury lawyer and, and uh, got into this this field. But um, it was funny because after I read that book in law school, I did a little Google search. And what came up was and this was right around 2007 or 2006 when I did the Google search was the uh, an article about how Stanley Rosenblatt, 20 years later, after he had written this book or 30 years later, got one hundred and forty six billion dollar verdict against the tobacco industry. And so what 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 happened was uh, he was just such a great trial lawyer. Him and his wife ended up filing a lawsuit in 1994 on behalf of all Florida citizens and residents who were addicted to cigarettes containing nicotine and that the addiction caused their disease. And so this class action ended up getting certified. There was a whole bunch of procedural stuff that went on. But eventually it went to trial in the late 1990s, 1999. And uh, it was over a, over a year long trial. And the first phase of that trial dealt with the tobacco industry's misconduct. And the jury came to the conclusion that the tobacco industry was, you know, a number of different manufacturers uh, were negligent, that the cigarettes they sold were defective, that they committed fraud and that they concealed uh, and that they can, you know, that they agreed to commit fraud. So it was like a conspiracy uh, claim as well. And uh, and then they went to a phase two where 
they uh, they awarded money to a certain number of the class members. And then they went to a third phase where there was this punitive damage award of one hundred forty six billion dollars. And uh, ultimately, and that was right around 2001, 2002. Ultimately, it went up to the Florida Supreme Court and the Florida Supreme Court said this this shouldn't have been a class action lawsuit, at least with respect to phase two and phase three, because it was just too individualized. You know, how can how can the jury how could this jury come back with this these verdicts on behalf of uh, all the plaintiffs and the punitive damage award? If we have to if these people have to prove individualized causation as to, you know, the, the industry's negligence causing a disease or the industry's fraud committing uh, causing someone's disease. So they reversed and they sent it back to the trial and they took away the, the, the punitive damage award. Um, uh, I think they affirmed a couple of the class members individual cases and their verdicts, but they sent it back and they said, because all of the issues in the first phase were common to all the class members, individuals can file individual lawsuits and they can rely on those few individual, those, those few findings that were common amongst the, the, uh, amongst the class against the tobacco industry. So, um, but we had to, we have to prove class membership. We have to prove that our client, this individual case, is a member of that class to get the benefit of those findings. And so what, who, what is a member of the Angle class? It's someone who was addicted to cigarettes containing nicotine and that their addiction caused a smoking-related disease. And it had to manifest on or before November 21, 1996. And they had to be a Florida resident. So there's a, a number of different factors we have to prove um, on an individual basis to to get the benefit of those findings. Um, and, you know, it's it's essentially all we all we get is those findings and you get to read them to the jury. But you still have to prove smoking caused this specific illness. You have to get past class membership. You have to prove addiction causation. So, yes, they do tend to be complex cases. And then uh, individualized, uh, you know, reliance on the fraud. We have to prove reliance on fraud and conspiracy. And then uh, and then also whether our clients are entitled to punitive damages. So there's a whole bunch of really interesting issues that come up in these trials. And the tobacco industry spares no expense on hiring an army of attorneys to defend the cases. And so uh, it's it's a uh, it's a, it's an interesting battle every single time we go to trial. And it's a lot of work. You know? Yeah. I, well, I, you um, you hear about I think even as a lawyer, when I initially heard about the Angles case and what that meant for cases that came after that, you feel like it's going to be such a head start kind of. And then you read, you know, the transcripts um, of what you actually have to prove and demonstrate and how they're contested, as you point out, by just like an army of lawyers who just that's just their job. That's what they do. And it's crazy because you think, I think what as a lay person or as a lawyer who doesn't do this kind of work, you think like, okay, you have to prove that the person's addicted to cigarettes. No, you know, no, no big deal or really like, okay, that should be kind of somewhat of a gimme. Right. But it's really not. I mean, we read the transcripts of what you had to do in this case and you had to start as simple as that, just showing that somebody was actually that, that Vivian was actually addicted. So it's one of those things that I think it took digging into a specific Ingalls progeny case to see how much, yeah, you get the benefit of the, those findings, but it really does seem like you have to start from the very beginning and the most basic level. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, that it, that is what it is. And they hire their you know experts to come in and say that the uh, decedent or whoever the smoker was, was not addicted. They didn't meet addiction criteria. 
they bring in, you know, well, qual- a bunch of qualified people. And then I'll listen, a lot of, a lot of the big issues when you're trying to prove addiction is, you know, yeah, well, yeah, maybe they were addicted, but all this information, there's this avalanche of information coming out from the 1960s warning people, you got to quit smoking, smoking is causing disease, smoking is deadly. And so they're able, you know, the tobacco industry is able to certainly tap into this idea that maybe they were addicted, but they should have quit sooner or they could have quit sooner. And there were all these different resources that were available. And there's a warning right on the pack of cigarettes since the 1960s. And the warning gets stronger as the years go on. So uh, that, that those issues, I, I wish that addiction was so easy. Like it sounds on its face that it would be easy, but it, it ends up being a, it ends up being a complex issue that really needs to be presented to the jury. And we bring our own experts. You know, we have to bring people who are experts in the field and the tobacco industry does too. And, it ends up becoming a, uh, a pretty, pretty uh, interesting battle. And not every case is one. I mean, I think if you look at the history of the angle progeny cases, you know, it's probably a 64, 55, 60, you know, to 40 split, 60% plaintiff, 40% defense. And, uh, and then if you throw in mistrials and things like that, it's probably even a little bit less. So, uh, you know, they, they do, they do tend to get uh, difficult and there is a, ba- it's a battle every time. Yeah. And, and in your case, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm interested to see if this is also the case in most of them. In your case, you also had to deal with the statute of limitations defense because they were claiming that your client should have known that she had COPD prior to 1990. I think it was May 5th, 1990. And I'm not sure I ever understood why May 5th, 1990 wasn't important and why that was the statute of limitations. But um you know, so you had that added layer that they were, you know, putting on all this evidence that she should have known uh, that she had COPD or, you know, this uh, or emphysema prior to uh, 1990. Yeah. So that, you know, this this particular case, if I go back in my you know, in history and uh, in my the history of my the trials that I've done, I've had a lot. I've had hard cases and I've had hard statute of limitation cases. And um, this was this was probably the second statute of limitations case that I had. The it's the hardest, hardest issue in, in all of the angle progeny cases. In this particular case, I really like no one in my old law firm wanted to try it. I was terrified of this case because there was, there was some serious ammunition that the defense had on the statute of limitations defense. And, uh, and I really had to, um, I really had to, you know, tweak the arguments and, you know, really look at the evidence. And man, this was this this happened to be one of those cases where, um, you know, I, I went into it thinking I was going to lose. And I think there was a there was a good there was something positive about that. Sometimes when you go into a trial and it's like, hey, if I, like there's a good chance I lose if I win, I'm a hero. Right. right. And so there's a level of um, the stress that kind of gets lifted off of you when you're able to do that, you kind of can go in a little bit more relaxed and put your heart into it and not like, Hey, I'm going to, there's a good chance I lose on this one. And when you're able to do that, I think in trial, um, I just remember my partners at the time. And I don't know, I don't think I was a partner yet, or I may have just became partner, like a junior partner in my old firm. And they kind of said, they sat me down. I said, Eric, listen, get in there and just try it. You know, and if you lose, yeah. listen, we're going to lose cases, but we got to try it. And so uh, that was, the, the statute of limitations defense in this one, it was, it was a story. It was an adventure. And um, I traveled around the state to the middle of literally nowhere for a critical witness that ended up testifying and 
it was the it was the uh, defense's key ex or key witness on the statute of limitations defense. And, you know, I did what we could could do and, and we came out on top. So. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them. They'll enlarge them. They'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. From what I saw in the evidence that, that I think what you're referring to that made it difficult from a statute of limitations standpoint was that it, I guess there was three different pulmonologists who testified all of whom testified that she that she had COPD in the 1980s or before May 5th of 1990. And then what sounded like maybe the toughest witness was a, a like a lifelong friend or maybe somebody she had worked with for a long time who testified not only I mean, I, I, two things came out of her testimony from what I could tell. One is that she knew she had shortness of breath and, you know, symptoms that were consistent with COPD prior to 1990 and that she was using an inhaler. But the other thing was what, what I read, the defense's theme sort of from their closing, which was that she willingly, willfully, enjoyably smoked for 50 years. 
um, you know, knowing that it was dangerous. And that was, uh, they had that theme that, uh, that their lawyer repeated several times, but is this woman named Barbara. That's all I saw her, her name was, but it, were those some of the things that made the statute of limitations uh, issue difficult in this case? Yeah, th those were the those were the key things. And there was a couple added elements of what Barbara had testified to. Um, but just just so that, you know, listeners can understand, I guess, the history is that, you know, you talked about May 5th, 1990. The verdict, the question, the verdict form is, did, you know, did the decedent know or should they have known on or before May 5th, 1990, whether they uh, had it, you know, COPD and whether there was a reasonable possibility it was caused by smoking. So it was a new or should have known standard. The reason that date is important is just that the class action was filed May 5th, 1994. So if okay. you just go back that four years, that's that <laughs> statute of limitation timeframe that the person has from the date they knew or should have known that they should file their lawsuit. And since the class, you know, the, the attorneys on, on behalf of the class filed May 5th, 1994, you go back to May 5th, 1990. And just like any product liability case where you have a creeping disease, like an asbestos case, um, when, when it first manifests itself, when the plaintiff should, knew or should have known, that's when they have to that's when the clock starts ticking that they have four years to file their lawsuit. So that's where you get that May 5th, 1990 date. So yes, every, every way, all the experts agreed that she more likely than not had COPD before May 5th, 1990, because the, when she was diagnosed, I think it was 93 or 94 when she was diagnosed, um, it, the severity level was, was seeming, it was, you know, seemingly bad. And so you can kind of look at that and say, well, it takes a number of years to get to that level of COPD. So uh, pretty much everyone agreed that more likely than not, she had it um, before 1990. So the question was, should she have known that she had it? You know, uh, and, and I had strong medical records from 1993 saying that that was the first time that she was diagnosed. It was the first time she was hospitalized. It was the first time, um, you know, that she was you know put on a ventilator or, you know, and given a pulmonary function test. So I had all these very strong evidence from 93 showing that there was no prior history of breathing problems or, you know, uh, use of medications or inhalers. And so I kind of capitalized on that, you know, the medical record. It's like, hey, you have to look at the documents from the time from back then, as opposed to eyewitness testimony. The problem was this this uh, this witness, Barbara, who the defense found literally, I think it was two months before trial or a month and a half before trial. And, uh, you know, they wait until the very end. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced they had talked to this lady long before trial and they just waited, waited, waited. And then they, they like, we want to take this lady's deposition. She lives in the middle of nowhere in Florida. And so, um, we're taken, I think I had a hearing the judge, you know, I objected to it cause it was so close to trial and the, uh, the judge allowed it. So, I remember I ended up flying up twice and then driving to the middle of nowhere. Uh, the first time she didn't show up, the second time she ended up showing up. But yeah, the, the, the critical thing that the defense seized on was one, that this woman, Barbara, worked with my with the decedent, with Vivian Wilkinson in a bar together in the mid 1980s. So she had close contact and her testimony was that she remembered Vivian Wilkinson using inhalers on multiple occasions and also not just using the inhalers, but that she was getting the inhalers from other like bar patrons because she didn't want to go to the doctor. <laughs> you know, it was something really it was that was how bad it was. It was like, you know, should she know that she has breathing problems or COPD? It's like she's refusing to go to the doctor and somehow she's getting these inhalers from uh, from guests 
from the bar. And that was the evidence that I had to kind of overcome. And then, uh, you know, testimony from Barbara that Vivian would get short of breath when she was walking through the bar. And that's what the defense uses as evidence of the, the, that the decedent knew or should have known that they had COPD is their argument was, well, listen, she's having shortness of breath. Instead of going to the doctor, she would have just went to the doctor. You know, she had COPD before. Then they would have tested her and she would have, you know, would, would have been positive. She'd know about it. She should have filed her lawsuit sooner. So that was what I was over. I had to overcome. And uh, it was the that was the worst. That testimony um, from from Barbara. Uh, you know, about, about, you know, these breathing problems and using inhalers and the observations. And, uh, and then also know she testified that, you know, I remember Vivian and she know, knowingly, willfully, and enjoyably <laughs> right. smoked those cigarettes. We all did, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, but I had, I had a couple little pieces of ammunition that I, that I used against her also that I think, uh, I think, you know, the jury was able to kind of look, look at it and, and weigh her, her testimony, you know? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was very effective reading your opening. There were two things that I really liked that you did that I feel like, um, you know, sort of going into it, they were sort of, um, armed with really helpful things for them to think about. I think it was your opening where you had just kind of mentioned, you know, regardless of how it came out, it really sounded like there was this one, sort of random outlier person who was talking mm. about these COPD, COPD symptoms um, is what it it felt like, re, you know, hearing your opening. And another thing that you did that I really liked is that I think this was in your opening. You, um, you sort of made the comparison, you threw the comparison out there about whether cell phones cause brain tumors. Um, <laughs> and it was so effective because... Um, you know, I don't know. One of the questions I had for you is has how you deal with potential smokers on the jury or past smokers on the jury or whatever. But everyone has a cell phone now, you right. know, and and everyone's kind of heard that sort of I hope that never turns out to be true. But everyone ke keeps using their cell phone. And I thought it was a really great way to sort of um, make Vivian really relatable to people who um you know, maybe don't smoke, but from there, you're sort of, you're, you're sort of starting to relate or think about it from that context. Um, and so I, I feel like even going into this evidence of, of her being short of breath, it was still like, you had already laid the groundwork to be like, you know, you could have, sure, this, this thing could have been developing like a brain tumor from a cell phone, yeah. but you might not know about it yet. You might not have that connection. There might not be a reason that you should know. And that's what we care about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, it's one of the analogies I've, I've used, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you hear about it, but do you believe it? Right. Do you really right. like internalize it? And, you know, even today, listen, I've heard that cell phones cause brain tumors, but do I like in or, like deeply believe it? No, I don't, I don't believe it. And maybe that's just me being naive. I don't know. I haven't seen a study. I haven't heard about it. And certainly the cell phone companies aren't talking about it. Um, right. And that's kind of similar to, 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 you know, the tobacco industry and that, the question is, you know, sh question is back in the 1980s, should she have believed that smoking was causing her, uh, you know, deadly illness, COPD? And yeah, they had to prove that she should have known that she had COPD, like emphysema. She had, they had to prove that it couldn't just be a smoking related illness. Right. OK. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. And, and another thing that, you know, we were able to point to on that front was the fact that in the 1980s, the tobacco industry is going on television 
on, you know, Nightline. And we actually had proof that she had seen that show um, going on. Uh, I think it was Ted Koppel who interviewed the CEO of RJ Reynolds, who said in the 1980s that smoking doesn't cause emphysema. It's not been proven. Right. So how should she be held to a higher standard back then than their own CEO? What he was saying. Yeah. You know, so that was just one thing I pointed out. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And we're going to we're going to go back and talk about sort of like the history of their sort of knowledge and conspiracy. But I, I, I did love that argument about, uh, you know, where, look, you're, you're saying she should have known back here that it caused her COPD. But their own CEO went on TV saying he didn't know. So how is she supposed to somehow have more knowledge than this tobacco company that's been doing this for 100 years or however long R.J. Reynolds had been around, uh, you know, at that point? But um, I wanted to I wanted to back up for one second and just talk about you. You started talking about this a little bit, but I just really wanted to cover it because um, I think it is so important, not just for tobacco cases, but just for any case you're going to try, which is, you know, walking into the courtroom, knowing that there's going to be some amount of jury bias, probably against your client. Um, and I do think tobacco cases are tough in that way uh, because most people nowadays, as you already said, you know, think of, well, you smoke, you know, everybody knows that smoking is bad for you. And so you, you sort of, you know, made your decision. So I guess from, you know, when, you know, from when you're picking the jury and then just setting up your themes, you know, and the way you try the case, how are you handling that, uh, that, you know, at least on the, on the face of it, jury bias uh, against your client for, for smoking when, when most people, uh, you know, probably think that, that she should have known or, you know, should take responsibility for her own actions. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of trial lawyers, you guys might disagree. And a lot of other trial lawyers might disagree. I'm convinced. And, you know, my men, at least one mentor agrees with me is that cases are won or lost in jury selection. You know, I, I think, I don't think if you end up picking a jury in a tobacco case or a medical malpractice case or car accident case, whatever it is, if you have a juror or a couple few jurors that have strong, personal, deep beliefs, um, you're not going to change their mind. You're not going to, they, they cannot, they will sink your ship, whether it's, right. a, whether it's a pure defense verdict or keeping the verdict down. Uh, jury selection, in my view, is the most important part of every trial. And when we, when we pick a jury, and over the years, you know, we've we've really fine tuned what we do and uh, all of the background and research that we do. And, and, you know, leading up, you know, I'm big on juror questionnaires. I think they're really, really important. I'm big on, um, find, you know, finding out the backgrounds of all of the jurors that are ultimately going to be deciding the case. And so jury selection, in my view, is the most important part, you know, in and, and tobacco cases are certainly, um, you know, on the top of the list when it comes to if you end up with a juror on your panel who's hey, you smoke, you know, it's about, you know, personal responsibility. You look in the mirror every morning. It was you that put it in your mouth and you don't put a gun to your head. And, you know, the tobacco industry didn't put a gun in your head. You're you're going to you're going to lose um, that case. So how do you how do you have to um, spend a lot of time and figure out really great questions and talk to the jurors and really figure out who's on that panel in the perspective panel? Uh, and and really, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, in Florida, we, we are able to you know strike people for cause if they give an indication that they can't be impartial, that they can't be fair in a particular trial. And uh, a lot of times that's what, you know, both sides of the fence are doing in uh, in these tobacco cases is both sides are really looking for. And what you can really only hope for is 
because the tobacco lawyers are experts in this as well. They're going to find jurors who have some feeling against the tobacco industry um, or, you know, or, you know, uh, or against, you know, smoking and whatever it may be. So uh, how do we how do we do it? It's uh, it it's a, a lot of. um it's it's understanding what the, what the cause challenges are, understanding what the law is, understanding uh, what the jurors feelings, opinions and attitudes are and and, uh, and taking your time to explore and not trying to change anyone's opinion. I'm not trying to, you know, get up there and, you know, convince them that I should win the case. That's never my purpose in jury selection. I'm just I just want to find out what they're thinking. And uh, and that that's where it really starts. Yeah, yeah no, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead, Steve. I, I absolutely agree about jury selection. Um, you know, it, it, I've always said it, it, opening is not always the sexiest time of the case. A lot of people like to do closings, but I think openings are much more important than closings. And um, and jury selection is uh, right there. So, I mean, it's your, your first two times to talk to the jury to understand who they are and then to, you know, uh, make your impression and, and, and started, you know, start painting the picture and start framing, you know, where you're going with the case of those two times. So I think those, you know, jury selection and opening are two of the uh, most vital times of trial. Um, one thing that I, you know, I wanted to hear you talk about a little bit is um, that I liked that you did both in opening and closing, which is this sort of concept or theme of choices. And, you know, you have to look at not only the choices that Vivian Wilkinson was making, but also the choices that the tobacco company was making and compare those choices and compare the knowledge that they had when they were making those choices and put them in context. And this is sort of what you were talking about at the beginning of, you know, sort of taking them back in history and understanding what it was like in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and 60s, and where the two sides were coming from when they're making these choices. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, developing that theme? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, I think choice, you know, obviously there's there's uh, personal choices and then there's corporate choices. And so you can really highlight those and make that a theme. And it's funny, I remember, you know, because there's been so many of these trials when we're getting prepared, I may if I'm going up against a particular lawyer, you know, I'll take a look and see what they've said in their jury selection and or their opening statements in the past and try to, you know, use some of the information that I that I gather. And I remember before one trial, I remember reading a defense attorney's opening statement or closing argument. And he said, you know, we're not asking you to um, second guess the smokers choices. We're you know, we're going to ask you to respect their choices. They had a, they had a personal choice and a decision that they chose. They liked smoking. And so I remember taking that and saying, you know what, I'm going to take that. And I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I remember I did. I, I think I said a few things verbatim that that other lawyer said during jury selection, my intro to jury selection <laughs> and my uh, my theme of opening, which was I think very early on, I got up there and I said, listen, I'm not going to ask you to second guess Vivian's choices. I'm going to ask you to respect <laughs> her choices. Right. I'm also, you know, but you have to look at her choices in context and look at the choices of the tobacco industry. I remember the look on the defense attorney's face when, yeah, you know, when awesome. his, his face turns white because he's like, he's taking all my material, you yeah. know? Um, actually, I remember the defense attorney after I did uh, after I did jury selection, he walked up to me and he goes, that all sounded pretty familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that you know, you have to set it up. Um, you know, I guess on the plaintiff side, in this particular case, the big argument is choice you know, is, uh, is they weren't addicted. They chose to smoke. They enjoyed smoking. They had all the information they need. 
and they could have chosen at some point to, to stop smoking. And so the, the obvious flip side to that is the tobacco industry knew how deadly their product was. They chose to conceal it. They chose to misrepresent information about their product. They chose to design the cigarette so that people couldn't quit smoking, made it hard for them to quit smoking. So when you look at choices, you have to look at choices in context. And uh, I think that's something that we are able to do is, and, you know, tobacco cases, you know, are just so interesting because we just have such a, there's just such a phenomenal, you know, mountain of evidence that we can use against the industry in their own words, you know, this window into the thought process of Mm -hmm. a real evil industry, not just one company, but across the board. I mean, this is, there's not many, I don't think there are many different uh, companies in history where you actually have documentation of them of, of an industry wide effort where they get together and they're talking about deceiving the public, um, you know, to collectively, you know, that's that's real evil stuff. And uh, and, you know, again, we, we now have those documents and you know, people people started suing tobacco companies, I think, back in the 1960s and 70s when people started yeah. getting sick and they lost every single one because no one had no one knew what the industry knew internally. You know, we didn't have those documents that really came to light in the 90s and late 90s where these uh, I mean, I, even even Stanley Rosenblatt didn't have, you know, all the stuff uh you know, I think eventually for maybe phase two, he, he had a bunch of stuff, uh, a bunch of these documents. But the original angle case, who knows whether they put in all the stuff that we have now. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. One of the things that there was an article about your verdict in this case. And, and one of the things that, that um, 
one of the articles led with was how you basically tried the case alone. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, I think that's familiar to a lot of um, a lot of trial lawyers, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers in general. But I think especially for newer lawyers, it can be that concept can be intimidating, especially when you're coming up and, and uh, you know, you're going against either an industry with a lot of money or a really giant law firm where you know that every brief that you every motion that you file that they respond to, there's, you know, there's maybe five people on the signature block. And then there's probably another 10 that are billing to write it and review it. Um and obviously it works out well for you. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk about how you, whether you think that works to your advantage and how you approach that sort of, you know, big legal team on one side and you kind of on the other side. So, so this case, um, again, I told you no one in my firm wanted to try it and, you know, (laughs) I had worked the case up. (laughs) I, uh, I, you know, I went in, I had an associate that came with me, um, and she was helping out, you know, a ton. But when when they say that I tried it by myself, I I put every, you know, I did jury selection openings. Gotcha. I argued all the motions. I did, I put, I did all the all the like the argument stuff. And right, you know, stand. I was on my feet. I was the only one on my feet. Um, but uh, but you know, if I think about it, this, was a one defending case, and I remember that they had two defense lawyers that would have been at their table, and then probably one defense lawyer one or two in the gallery, like doing like the legal argument stuff. Um, so it was probably meet one with my associate and then client. And then they had two people at their table. They never bring a representative. So it's just two of them at the table and then a couple people in the back. So this particular case, you didn't get that, that feeling of at least the jury, I don't think gets to get that feeling of there's an army of lawyers okay. on the other side of the courtroom for mm-hmm. this particular case. Although I can tell you just from my experience, cause we've, we've gotten, you know, in, you know, discovery after trial, or we, you know, we see the service lists and we see the people copied on emails when, you know, jury questionnaires go out. Um, I've, for each of these cases, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of lawyers in, right. the, in the background that are doing the work. But listen, if you're alone, I always like that dynamic. I think that's a, I think it's not just cool, not just an interesting perspective, I think, from jurors. And I, I don't think I've ever asked any jurors about it before, but I just think there's something really cool about a lawyer just sitting there with his client going up against, a, you know, a group, you know, a group of defense lawyers on the other side of the courtroom. That dynamic is just cool to me. And I, yeah. that was, you know, it's funny, the long, long ago when I, when I was a, a prosecutor, I walked, I would watch civil trials and I remember walking into a courtroom and I saw a lawyer in the courtroom, there was half of a car in the middle of the courtroom, half of like a SUV cut in half. Right. And he's sitting there with his client. And there's this time there was an army of lawyers on the other side of the room. And um, I walked in, I go, that guy is, that is really cool. You know, and the judge <laughs> asked him to stand up, he calls the witness and he's going up against this army. And it turned out that uh, it he, the lawyer who was sitting there by himself was, would ultimately become my partner. It was John Ustall from Kelly Ustall. Um, and, you know, I remember meeting him there and I, I just remember thinking to myself like, wow, what it would be like to be like that guy, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, years later, I was the guy, you know, yeah. in a number of cases <laughs> sitting there by myself, which is really cool. Um, yeah. But I love that. I, I do like that dynamic. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I wanted to make sure we talked to our listeners about sort of this, you know, th- this, the history. I, I know they've heard it before if they listen to some of our uh, podcasts from a couple years ago, but, um, you know, th- this, uh, the, the history of what the tobacco industry did and, you know, RJ Reynolds in particular with regard to how they marketed cigarettes. And then once they realize, you know, that, that, uh, they might be losing share, they may, you know, make them easier to smoke is easier to inhale, easier to deliver nicotine to the brain. Um, do you want to, yeah, and I'm not, don't, you know, I'm not asking for a full <laughs> opening, but I just, you know, like a, a quick brief history of, uh, of, of, you know, like what, what they did in order to basically addict a huge portion of the American population, um, you know, to cigarettes in order to just sell their product and, and make sure people keep buying them. Yes. Yeah, so let me give, I'll try to give the thumbnail sketch <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it is a lot of information, yeah. but just, just, you know, the idea was there was no lung cancer in like before 1900, there essentially didn't exist. And then, and cigarettes were like a luxury, like they were expensive, there weren't a lot of them. And then these machines came out. And so they were able to mass produce and mass market them. And Reynolds was the first to really mass market and mass produce cigarettes in like 1913. And they did a, just an amazing campaign. And, you know, it, it, it became very cheap. So people started buying them and they're highly they're addictive. So people are getting addicted and it becomes ingrained in society and the industry got enough money to market them to really, uh, it just became part of society. And the 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 idea that cigarettes were dangerous or bad for your health kind of got lost because I think it just didn't it just wasn't there. Um, But around the 1950s, there were some studies that started coming out showing this correlation between this massive rise in lung cancer, which came out of nowhere, correlating to smoking. And uh, some scientists did some mouse painting studies where they would paint tar from cigarettes in the back of mice and they started to develop tumors. That became big news in the early 1950s. And at the same time, R.J. Reynolds and some of the other companies were doing their own internal research. And there's a great document from the early 1950s where R.J. Reynolds concludes that there was a correlation between their cigarettes and lung cancer. And uh, when when the news came out about those mouse painting studies, the the sale of cigarettes declined and there was a a drop in the in. in the market for cigarettes. And so the industry in around 1953, there's this famous telegram from one of the heads of the major tobacco companies saying, hey, we all need to meet and talk about the situation. And we have these uh, these great meeting minutes and documents from 1953 where the heads of the tobacco companies get together in the Plaza Hotel in New York and they hire a public relations firm, uh, Hill and Knowlton. And again, right around that time in December 53, going forward a little bit, you see these these great memos where they're talking about how they need to come up with ways to free people of the fear that's going to arise every time they smoke a cigarette. How do we free them of this this guilty fear um, that's going to arise in their biological souls? It's very eloquently written. And they hatch this plan and they come up with these fake scientific organizations that are going to that tell the public they're going to look into the problem, whether smoking really causes disease or not. And they're going to spend tons of money on research and we need more research. The idea was to cast ultimately cast doubt on whether smoking did or did not cause disease. And so it was just this very intricate scheme that was hatched by the, you know, the heads of the major tobacco companies. They created multiple different organizations and they went public 
publicly denying that smoking caused disease, publicly denying that it was harmful, casting doubt on, you know, studies that would come out saying smoking caused disease. And they would hire public relations people to go on TV. They would draft, you know, ghosts, you know, ghost write stories in magazines and articles to kind of just and they would send, you know, uh, newsletters and records to doctors and, you know, um, doctors, scientists, politicians, public, you know, public thought leaders that all cast doubt on whether smoking caused disease or not. They would point to everything other than smoking being the cause of disease. And they really that was the plan. That was what they did for 50 years uh, was was follow this plan. And we have great documents from the 1970s where they kind of um, they look back like they're like, look back and they're like, listen, over the past 20 years, we came up with this strategy and it was brilliantly conceived where we're casting doubt. So we have this really good, uh, good documents. And that's when one facet of it. And then we know internally they are concluding that smoking is causing disease. It's deadly. And then we also know the other arm of it was they're designing the cigarette um, around um, around the delivery of nicotine. And then ultimately, not just the delivery of nicotine, but how do they deliver nicotine more effectively, more efficiently? They begin adding chemicals to cigarettes. Um, Philip, you know, Philip Morris was, I think, the first to add ammonia and diammonium phosphate to the Marlboro brand. And, and you see that, you know, the historians will testify about how, you know, the Marlboro brand cigarette had this phenomenal um, rise in market share because it was the first to add ammonia and freebase nicotine. They would, there was different forms of nicotine and the, the ammonia and some other chemicals and some other design features would make the, the nicotine more potent and impactful. And so uh, yeah, there was a number of different arms of this thing, you know, and they got, it's, it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, you have offshore laboratories, you know, uh, trying to hide studies about smoking, causing disease and dummy mailboxes and, you know, destroying documents. So the story of the history of the tobacco industry is just, uh, you know, it, it's something you can, when you get in trial, you can just really get up there and it's just, you feel so powerful. It's just such a powerful argument to talk about it. And yeah. people, I think they hear it, they see it. And when they see the documents, they realize, Whoa, I had no idea this. I had no, I thought cigarettes were just tobacco rolled up in a, in a, in a you know piece of paper. I didn't realize that it's one of the most sophisticated, highly engineered products ever to exist, you know? Yeah, it's shocking. And I mean, it's shocking. One of the things that I, I mean, there's a lot I didn't know about until reading about the documents that were in that are in cases like yours. Um, and especially I mean, it's it all feels unforgivable. But one of the things that feels so unforgivable to me is that some of the things that were actually that were marketed to to seem safer or lower risk, like, you know, reduced tar or filters um, mm -hmm. or light cigarettes were actually like worse <laughs> right? Um, or more addictive or however they worked or, you know, as you talk about sort of refining that nicotine delivery system. I mean, that absolutely blew my mind. I had not heard that in sort of like news or, or pop culture period until I, you know, I started reading about documents and arguments made in these cases. That's when I heard that for the first time. Yeah, the, the filters thing, you know, especially kind of surprised me because, you know, I remember, you know, back in high school or college when, I, 
every once in a while I might have a cigarette. You know, you filter cigarettes are supposed to be better for you because it's got a filter. But that was actually the exact opposite. I mean, uh, you know, exact opposite and made you want to smoke more because, you know, you needed to, you know, keep getting it into your system and made it easier to smoke. Yeah, I mean, there, again, there's just there's so many different um, facets of, of these cases. And so the obvious, the filter, the low tar, the light, the ultralight cigarettes, you know, they're all in their in the tobacco industry's words, uh, an illusion of filtration, you know. And, and so, again, that to me, I mean, there's a few things that that's another thing that blew my mind. And I think it's, you know, very powerful for jurors is that you the documents that talk about these people who are switching from unfiltered cigarettes to filtered or low tar or light cigarettes are actually getting more tar and nicotine because they're compensating because their body is needs nicotine. So they end up smoking more. They end up inhaling it deeper into their lungs. I've tried cases where um, we, you know, we're able to show uh, that. And I mean, it's in the surgeon general report from like 2014 or so, or 2010, I forget what, what year it was, but they talk about how there were these design changes you know, like filter vents and other things that the cigarette industry did to the cigarettes that actually increased the incidence of different forms of lung cancer. Like adenocarcinoma was like uniquely much more related to these light ultralight cigarettes because people were inhaling farther into their lungs into a more susceptible part. And, you know, the type of cancer predominantly was squamous cell carcinoma. And then over time with the design changes, you saw this excess burden of adenocarcinoma, which is another form of lung cancer, devastating. Um, and you have the scientists talking about how more likely than not, those are related to the changes that the cigarette industry were telling people were going to help them. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is unbelievable stuff. How do you, um, when you approach these cases, you know, you've got this this universe of documents that you point out that, that a lot of folks didn't initially have, but they're out there now. And there's a lot of really horrifying stuff. How do you pick what you use? How do you pick the right amount so that it's impactful and the jury gets it without being overwhelmed or being like, we get it. <laughs> yeah. No, it, that is, that's a big, it is a big, uh, a big, you know, thing with these trials is that you don't want to overdo. And I've seen other lawyers overdo, you know, and they, their opening statements end up being three hours long, or I just, I don't believe in that. Um, I believe in kind of being quick, get to the point, give the information that they need, find the critical documents. Every case, every case, every smoker has, you know, some of it's the same, but some of it's different, you know? And so, you know, you have to look at what brand of cigarettes they were smoking. And then there's, mm -hmm different issues that come up with different brands. A Marlboro case is going to be different than a true case, you know, or a, or a camel unfiltered case, whatever, right. whatever it is, or a, a Marlboro light case is going to be different than um, some other ultra light case. There's just, so you have to kind of tweak, you're going to have to tweak what documents you want to put in front of them uh, or you want to admit into evidence because some of the design features that you may find in a Marlboro or a Winston case they, uh, you know, they just wouldn't be useful in another in a different case. So yeah, yeah. It, it that is an art. And I like to try to pare down and really get the key documents that I really want to use because I don't want to be up there really long. And I'm I'm convinced now that uh, that jury trials and jurors, it's like uh, it's like TikTok. You know, if you don't get information <laughs> to them in 15 right. seconds or a minute, they're mm -hmm. moving on. Their mind goes somewhere else, you know. Yeah. I think that's really important. So yes, it is, a, it is a big thing. And listen, we haven't even talked about the marketing to kids and that's like, right. that's Ugh. another huge, 
thing. And I've I've had those documents excluded because let's say I have a case where someone didn't start smoking until they're 20 years old. Mm, okay. So the court will say, hey, you can't put in these documents to talk about the 13 year old and the 14 year old. Right. But they right. do exist. And I think Vivian, uh, Vivian Wilkinson's case, she was 13. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that we got youth marketing documents in. And I mean, uh, it's just amazing, amazing yeah. that you see these documents that you just couldn't believe that they're talking about the 13 and 14 year old and how today's teenager is tomorrow's regular customer. And right. We must get our share of the youth market. You know, yeah. it's like uh, that stuff is really just it's really, really egregious stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like, like we were talking about at the beginning about the Flintstones commercial, which, you know, looking back now, you know, seems a little bit funny, except that it's so just evil. I mean, it's so, you know, I mean, it is specifically targeted to uh, kids that watch uh, cartoons. Uh, but I think some of the other uh, um, marketing for children that I've heard of was uh, textbooks, I think, with like when they're in sixth and seventh grade, being sponsored by tobacco companies and, and having like tobacco advertisements uh, in there. And, and, uh, and, and just like you said, the memos where they're basically talking about the early teen or the preteen market and making sure that they're, you know, getting kids trying it out, you know, early on like that to make sure that they really get them uh, hooked. Well, I'm going to have to write down the sponsoring textbooks in school because I haven't seen that yet, but I'll use it in my next trial. Well, maybe I'm wrong, Yvonne, but I thought I remember that from Russ Herman's uh, case maybe. that he had where, where there was something in there about textbooks. Maybe maybe I just made that there, up. No, there right? was yeah. definitely something about textbooks. I can't yeah. remember what it well, was. I'm going to, I'm going to, I got to find that, but <laughs> yeah. um, no, there, there is, you know, a lot of it was sampling. A lot of it's getting out there and, and getting, you know, kids, I mean, it's, you, you wouldn't believe, I mean, even I could look back when I was, you know, in, in high school or even college, but I would say high school, let's say I'm younger than, I know I was younger than 18 going to a, a, a concert. And I remember these like young women handing out packs of cigarettes to me, you know, it was yeah. like, not like a question. It wasn't like, Hey, do you, you know, I mean that it, it was done by design. I mean, it's done by design and you can go back and look in, in a number of different tobacco documents talking about where they're targeting, where they're going, who they're talking to. Um, you know, they, they, the industry recognized at least, you know, in a number of documents that if they didn't get the youth market, it's like a pop, it's like mo the overwhelming majority of people start to smoke before the age of 18 and people don't start to smoke. If they make it to 23, 24 years old, the chances of someone starting to smoke out of the blue at that age, it's like just highly unlikely. It doesn't happen. So they recognize, I mean, they talk about it again, eloquently. They talk about how it's like a population that doesn't give birth will dwindle. They need right. to get the youth market. They need replacement smokers. When people die or quit, who are they going to replace them with? And, you know, um, if, 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 ever, if most people start under the age of 18, who do you think they're going for? You know? Right. Right. So, um, so one of the big defenses in the case that they at least spent a lot of time in the opening and closing on was um, how many times Vivian's parents didn't want her to smoke, didn't allow smoking in the house and her family members begged her to quit and told her to quit, you know, and it's, you know, sort of all this stuff along the line of that she should have known or did know that smoking was bad for her. Um, and I'm wondering how you prepare, um, how you prepare the family members for that, but, you know, both when they're going to be deposed or their testimony and just sort of, you know, going to trial, knowing that a big part of the defense or a potential defense is going to be their own stories about, you know, asking their loved one to quit smoking or, or 
efforts that they made to keep their loved one from smoking? It's not so much like the preparation because the facts are going to be the facts, but I don't like, it's like with all, with all cases, you have to look at some facts you think are bad when they're really not that bad. Mm -hmm. And they're actually, when they're actually a weapon for you. So when I hear about a family member telling someone, you got to quit smoking and they say, leave me alone or screw you. I'll do what I want. One one way you can look at that is, well, they knew that smoking was bad. The other way you can look at that is if you're talking to an alcoholic and you tell them, hey, you got to quit drinking and they say, leave me alone, get out of here. I do like I could quit tomorrow. Like that's just evidence. They have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's I remember I was one of my biggest fears in one case was that uh, that someone someone had never tried to quit smoking. Like they smoked right up until the time they got sick and then finally they quit. And so the argument was, well, how do we know they were addicted if they never even tried to quit? And then, and I was like, gosh, we're going to, you know, this is terrible. And then you look at it the other way. It's like, well, it's like they didn't go a day without smoking. You know? right. Like they never even, they had a cigarette in their mouth every day for 40 years. That's addiction. I don't, whether they tried to quit or they didn't try to quit. Right. Like they couldn't, they never went a minute without a cigarette. So I guess it's, you know, which way you cut it. And uh, I think a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that looks really harmful ends up being a, you know, a powerful weapon because a powerful weapon, especially for addiction. I mean, who, if you know, something is going to kill you or has the potential to kill you and you just keep doing it Mm -hmm. despite all these warnings. Right. If you look at the criteria for, for addiction, it's like doing something, you know, is harmful, you know, like, and, but continuing to do it over and over again, expecting different results. That's addiction. Right. (laughs) Right. That's right. Yeah. I was thinking about that, you know, in, your, in the addiction part of the case, because one of the things you have to prove is that they were addicted to nicotine. And I, I was reading, you know, your closing about what their what their case was. And I, I was thinking, you know, how hard do they really argue this, which they must argue hard. But I mean, you know, first of all, you've got the fact that your client was smoking a pack a day for 40 to 50 years, which sounds addicted. And then you got her family telling her to uh, stop smoking. But, you know, on top of that, um, you know, you've got the own, you know, all these memos and, and internal uh, evidence from the company saying, you know, we're looking for ways to make sure we deliver nicotine because we know it's so addictive. And then finally, you, the experts that they hired, you did a, a great job <laughs> with them where you pointed out that w- w- I think one of their psychiatrists, first of all, had never done any kind of studies into tobacco until she got hired by the lawyers for one of the cases, but then had never, ever found anybody that she thought was addicted to nicotine. And then, and then I think there was another expert who had never seen any person he thought meant any, you know, met the Ingalls criteria. So it's like, you know, how do these, how do these experts have any credibility if, if they're, if they can't find at least one person, I mean, it just doesn't look credible in front of a jury to say, yeah, nobody's ever been addicted to nicotine. I mean, that's just like ridiculous. Yeah. And I think we saw over time that uh, their experts started to say people were addicted, but okay. they won't use the word addiction. They'll say, y'all, they have a, a, a tobacco use disorder. It's moderate, but doesn't rise to the level of addiction. Um, you know, they, they, they use other little things that kind of like, um, you know, there, there are, there just have a number of different arguments. It's like, we could say on any given quit attempt, only 5% of people will actually quit for more than a year, right? Like 5% will succeed. And they can, they'll come back and say, well, that's like someone on a dot taking, doing like a, just trying a diet, you know, a lifestyle change. 
you know, only 5% of people will be succeed on dieting and, you know, stopping for that good or for that long. Uh, or they'll point out that, oh, no, nicotine is not really that addictive. It's, it's mild. It's more like caffeine. Or they'll show studies that show how much dopamine is released uh, when someone uses cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine compared to an alcohol, compared to what a cigarette does. So they have little subtle ways of of uh, of showing this of showing this kind of stuff. And then, all, of course, the idea that if the, if the person just tries hard enough, they'll you know, they succeed. They just didn't try hard enough. They weren't committed. They they did a haphazard quit attempt. Yeah. And I've seen that stuff be effective. I mean, I've I've uh, I've seen jurors come back um, only a couple of times for me, but I've seen jurors come back uh, saying no to the addiction question. You don't yeah. necessarily know whether the juror decided um, in some cases you might know because the question is like loaded. It's did the addiction cause the you know, did the addiction were they addicted and did the addiction cause disease? So you don't know what part of the question they're answering. But, you know, you're presuming if you lost on addiction, that first question they probably didn't believe that the person was addicted, you know? So, yeah. And again, and, and again, it comes back to also, you know, do you have jurors? Are there jurors on there that, that just don't believe in nicotine addiction? They don't believe in addiction that it's just a, it's just someone who didn't have a strong will or someone who was uh, a, you know, weak minded, you yeah. know, that's it. I mean, if you get a, if you get a juror on your panel, who's like, I smoked for 10 years and <laughs> I quit in the second that was it. I put him down, never touched him again. You know, like, you know, that's that probably not someone that's going to be uh, open minded and fair and, you know, impartial. I've had smokers on my on my jurors on my juries before, too. You know, and, and some of them some of them get a lesson. I mean, they're like blown away. Yeah. You know, when, right. they, when they right. actually learn what's in their cigarette, they're like, whoa. Right. You know, um, so this jury allocated 80% of the default for the, for the compensatory compensatories to RJ Reynolds and then 20% to Vivian. Were you able to talk to them to find out kind of whether it was anything specific that, um, that resonated with them in terms of where that 20% came from? No, no, I wasn't. Um, and, uh, if, in my mind, if you get a 20, if you get 80, 20 in a, in a case like this, you are, that's like a, that's a slam dunk right. of, a, of, oh, a, nice. of a percentage yeah. of a percentage, you know, right. Right. And, and that's even, listen, was... even if you get 50, 50, sometimes I mean, 50, 50 is still pretty good, you know, oh, it's totally. Like, you just I, never I know. Yeah. I was curious if it was a specific, um, you know, thing, a specific point of time or specific, I, um, I, I wouldn't know with them. Yeah. yeah. So Vaughn, I just realized I, I made a, uh, total mistake right at the beginning. I didn't tell anybody how much the verdict was. <laughs> I, I, I just jumped right into the facts. So the, I should, I'm going to go back. The verdict was a total of 13 million. Uh, it was 3 million in compensatories, 1.5 million for each of the children, uh, which is uh, in Florida for wrongful death. It's a, sort of a support claim, right? Or, or for the companionship and guidance where, as opposed to uh, in Georgia, where we practice, where, where it's a value of the life type claim. Um, but, um, and then the punitive damages verdict of 10 million. Um, so for a total of 13 million, and as Yvonne just uh, mentioned, there was 80% uh, of the fault was attributed to RJ Reynolds and 20% of the fault to uh, to Miss Wilkinson. So um, we haven't really uh, touched on how you presented damages to the jury. You want to talk a little bit about how you approach that uh, with them on setting a um, sort of the, the values for the compensatories and then the punitives? Yeah, as I recall, I asked for two million for each um, 
child. You know, it's an, an adult, an adult survivor for the loss of their mother. Both of them, they were siblings. Um, I look back at the closing arguments. And I, you know, I, I, re I remember um, both Vivian and William on the witness stands and, you know, um, both of them are just great people, great witnesses and just just good, genuine people. And, uh, you know, when you have a, a chief master sergeant who's essentially like an enlisted general, you know, who served in Afghanistan. And when that guy breaks down, when he looks at a picture of his mom up on the, you know, on the on the uh, overhead projector, that's pretty powerful stuff. And, you know, it was funny. I actually look back because the, the judge said something about you have 10 minutes left. And I must have for that part of compensatory damages, it looks like I might've spent two minutes on it, you know, five, not even five minutes. I don't think right. I, I went, I, there was like a two paragraphs for each, each child. And I, but I, I just kind of just explained, I mean, you know, that kind of a loss I and mean, she was young. I mean, yeah, she was young. She was in her sixties, I think when she passed away, which means they both were in their like low thirties, mid thirties, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you also, you also did a nice job of talking about what it means to die from, from COPD and emphysema. Which... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just, that's like the suffocation and the, the, you know, it's really sad. I'll tell you what, I mean, and I've been handling tobacco cases for over a decade and I've watched, unfortunately, I've watched so many of my clients die um, and, and just really, you know, you, lung cancer is brutal. And I don't think people even understand how bad emphysema is and COPD. I mean, I COPD patients, sometimes I think it could be even worse than, than lung cancer because it's like this slow and then they're in the hospital and they're on a ventilator and they're out of the hospital and they're back in. And it's just really, uh, it's just really bad, you know, and they yeah. just lose weight and then they can't breathe. I mean, people with room. And doctors talk about it. It's like, imagine trying to breathe through like one of those like cocktail straws all the yeah. time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, um, you know, listen, you, you, you wrongful, you know, it's, you, you, I, I don't know. I can't tell you what you got. You just have to get up there and, and talk to the jury about how bad it is and what that yeah. loss is like and how important that person was and that they were, that they were, um, someone there that instilled good values and raised a good kid. You know, that's, I've had, you know, good success with adult survivor children, um, you know, damage cases. And uh, this just happened to be, like I said, I, I tried to make an argument with the judge. I look back and I remember I came up with this, uh, this argument that I was, I was going to say something about um, if you, if you took his pain and you spread it around a squadron of 500 men, you wouldn't see a smiling face. <laughs> I think I yeah. got it out. I think the judge sustained <laughs> the objection. I still, I think I still said it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know. You just have to, you just have to get up there and explain how significant it is. And I think, you know, listen, I, I was, I was, I remember being very pleased that the jury came back with 1.5 for each kid, mm -hmm. even though yeah. they didn't give me as much as I asked for, which, you know, sometimes a lot of times doesn't happen. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you get more. That's right. I have to look back. Maybe you guys saw, but I, I don't remember. I, I wonder if I asked for more than 10 million. I think they gave me more in punitive damages than I asked for, but I'd have to double check that, that closing. I'm almost, yeah. I'm almost certain they gave more. I think but, they might have, I'm trying to remember too, but I read, I kind of read everything at once. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember, uh, and that was, you know, this, that was, that was like, it's funny that I picked this trial to talk about this one because that was like my the breakthrough in, in like my, uh, my career as a trial attorney. That was my first 
tobacco case where I went in there as the lead lawyer. It did everything from start to finish. Um, I had tried one as like a second, you know, as a first chair kind of, I, you know, I split it up with the other, another partner in my office previously, like the a year before. And so this was one where it was like, Hey, go in there and just try it and do your best. And, and, uh, that was the beginning of, of, uh, of my, my loan kind of tobacco career, like going forward, it was me and that the associate, her name is Kim Wald at Kelly Ustall. And we just tried so many cases together and just got great results. But that year, 2016, man, I got that $13 million verdict. And then later that year, I think I got like a 20, it was a $28 million verdict. And then later that year it was another six or $7 million. It was just like a really, really incredible year. And it was like, uh, you know, you look back and it's like, how did that happen? Like, how did, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. cool hit, just cool history. And like, you know, it's funny. I go on to CVN now and I look, if you just like type in the, my name and it's like, how did I do all those trials? It's like, right, yeah. what, <laughs> like what, you know, sitting here right now in retrospect, it's like, gosh, each one was like a, a battle, you yeah. know, but just cool. It's just, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And if anybody does go onto uh, Eric's uh, website, which is rosenindry.com, I mean, he's got a string of uh, verdicts against the tobacco companies, which are uh, very impressive. So um, great work. Uh, Eric, let me just ask you, is there anything else about the um, Wilkinson versus RJ Reynolds uh, tobacco co- corporation case um, that we haven't that you want to make sure that our uh, listeners know about that we haven't had a chance to talk about already? No, I think we, uh, I think we talked about uh, a lot of it. I know that uh, the only thing that I can, I can add is that, um, is that there just, there's been so many people that have suffered from smoking related illnesses and so many people that have lost someone close to them. And, you know, uh, it's important that, that companies, whether it's the tobacco industry or other industries that, that, uh, that are greedy and that cause this inflict this kind of harm that they need to be held accountable and that you got trial lawyers like you guys and other people around this, this, uh, this country that are willing to, um, to step up and take the risk, you know, and it's not an easy risk to go up against these, uh, these industries. So. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, are the, so the um, in order to qualify for the class for Ingalls, you had to be diagnosed before 1996. Are those, are those cases, uh, are they, almost done or going away or are they are there's still a lot around no there's a couple thousand of those cases still lingering oh, wow. around in the different state courts around florida but the time to file those lawsuits the angle class class lawsuits were they had to be filed back in like 20 2007 2008 so that class is closed okay there are um lawyers that are filing new lawsuits against the industry around the country um, my prior firm, I know, is spearheading a few, and the Alex Alvarez Alvarez firm in Miami have a few, and uh, I don't want to say a few. I think they got a bunch of them, but um, there's a number of different uh, people that are are looking into new cases against the industry uh, because a lot of the conduct really it's surprising that that the industry didn't even admit that smoking was harmful until 2000. You know, right? right. Yeah. You would think it was a lot lo- a lot mm-hmm. earlier, especially since 1964 is when the Surgeon General report came out and said smoking caused lung cancer, but it took them a really long time to uh, get their, uh, their act together. I don't think their act is together yet, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I wanted to mention that, which I thought, you know, because you, you did a nice job on going through the different warnings and cautions they had on there. And, and I thought it was interesting how they, you know, write, uh, wrote their warning on there, which was the surgeon general says that this is harmful to your health or something at the same time that they were writing that on there, 
they're basically undermining the Surgeon General saying Surgeon General doesn't know what he's talking about. So it's almost like they're not putting a warning on their package <laughs> if you were to follow what the tobacco companies were saying, because they're saying this is what the Surgeon General says. We're not saying it, but that's what that guy says. Yeah. And that is just uh, part of their campaign of doubt, confusion, confusion, controversy. And if they can keep that controversy open, they knew that people who are addicted to cigarettes, they're going to they're going to latch on to that doubt. You right. know, they're going to choose to they're going to choose to continue smoking because, hey, when once I really know or more information comes out, well, maybe then I'll quit or I can quit anytime. So that that's really the strategy of uh, of of uh, keeping people smoking. I mean, th there's a great document from uh, right around after 1964 from Philip Morris, the uh, one of the CEOs, one of the very high level executives talks about we need to find a psychological crutch and self rationale to keep people smoking. Oh my right. God. And that is kind of it. That's it. They give a psychological crutch like filters, ultralight, low tar. Yeah. It's not that harmful. You know, uh, you can quit anytime. Yeah. You know, well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I have one more question, then I'll let you go because you've been uh, you've been so generous with your time. But uh, so, on these new cases that are being brought, do they not get the findings that were made in the Ingalls? They have to. They're basically starting from square one. Yeah. Yes. They're. They're. You know, I I always refer to them at least as non-angle cases in Florida. I call them non-angle cases. I've tried one before. It's just your traditional product liability case, uh, a defective product. You know what. And then you got to look at what test you're going under and what state you're in. And then also there may be a fraud conspiracy count a negligence count. And uh, yeah, so you're, you're from square one. You got to prove that yeah. uh, their product is uh, unreasonably dangerous and defective and that kind of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, Eric, uh, thank you so much. Let me remind everybody, we've been talking about the um, uh, Vivian Turner as personal representative of the estate of Vivian Wilkinson uh, versus RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company, which was tried back in 2016 in Broward County, Florida. Uh, and it was a total verdict of $13 million on behalf of Eric's clients. And uh, we have been talking to Eric Rosen, uh, who is the uh, senior partner at Rosen Injury Law. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And you can look up Eric at roseninjury.com. That's R-O-S-E-N injury.com. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. This was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at 
greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.